world spinning its way to damnation amidst the fear and despair of a broken human race who is left to fight for what's good and pure that's right it's time for night rule i am uh, isaac i'm joined by my good friend professor adnan hussein of queen's university hello adnan thank you for joining us for night rule oh it's a delight glad to be with you so i know you just came off another podcast talking about uh the current situation in palestine and israel Israel and the occupied territories. I mean, the nomenclature being so hard to pin down, I think is really emblematic of a lot of the issues here, you know? Um, I mean, we've been, uh, people have been talking about it a lot. Um, I talked about it with Hannah Feldman last episode, which I thought was a pretty good conversation. I think there's, you know, it's frustrating to see the lack of nuance in a lot of the conversations that's out there, the lack of uh, historical knowledge, um, and also people kind of having succumbed to some extent to a certain media narrative um, that has really just become, uh, you know, it's learned by rote, it's paint by number, it's something that's been passed down from the top down. Um, but I also, I think there's a lot of interesting things in terms of uh, people speaking out and new voices kind of being unafraid to emerge and comment on the situation. Um, where do you think we're at right now with this kind of, you know, as we kind of look at this um, unsteady truce that's kind of taken hold? Well, I'm not a progr- uh, you know, prognosticator or a political scientist to really talk about um, whether I think uh, the truce will hold or how this is being used by the different parties to shape their positioning vis-a-vis one another uh, or you know, the way some people want to talk about it, which is who gained the most out of it and so on. Yeah. I, mean, I think we can do some analysis of that, but I think what it is is really an opportunity finally for, uh, you know, the world to put some effort into a genuine solution to an abiding problem 
that it could be uh, characterized as at least 73 years running. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, this, this uh, hiatus in active conflict, um, you know, the situation is fundamentally one of oppression and inequality, and that's not going away unless we do something, you know, about it. I think it's interesting that you mentioned that there's not a lot of nuance um, in the media and public discourse about the situation. Um, I think sometimes uh, many it's people too much. Are, yeah, are struggling yeah. to try and demonstrate nuance. There's a mm. bit of a both-sidedism that plagues a lot of the coverage when it's at its best often. Yeah, I've definitely heard people push back. Like I think I myself said something along the lines of, you know, it's complicated and had a pushback on the last episode saying, you know, on one hand it is, on the other hand, it's very simple. And that's I think that's, right. a, that's a really good point. That's a really good perspective right now um, as well. Yeah, um, yeah. And, I mean, there are some there are some truths to the situation that just have to be recognized and i think we get into complications when we try and avoid confronting the full consequence of that truth and that's um one of the obfuscating elements of this um discussion i think and so one of mm -hmm. the truths of it that's simple is just that you have a settler colonial situation um that uh, means the suppression of one uh, people uh, for the privilege of another. That's a condition of injustice. And as a result, uh, there will not be security if that's what, for example, Israel and its citizens um, are looking for, if they're looking Which for- Which I'm sure it is, you know, yeah, among other things, yeah. Among other things. I mean, yeah. I think the problem is, is that, um, they want a kind of security that guarantees and preserves a certain privilege and dominance and a, supre you know, a supremacy you know they want exactly. they want like they they're they're going to they're going to guarantee their supremacy but about their security via supremacy which seems to me yes. the ultimate kind of poison chalice you know exactly. what i mean because exactly. if if and 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 if you're living in a society that lives in constant fear of being the subject of another genocide yeah. You will inevitably like this is this, you know, Rod Serling could have written a Twilight Zone episode about this 50 years ago, and it would have been totally understood by everybody that if you're fixated on being a victim of a genocide, you know, if you have a recent cultural memory of a horrific genocide, but if and, and you're living your life based on that basis, you're going to you're guaranteed to commit genocide against someone else to guarantee to, to try and achieve some sort of um feeling of peace some sort of peace of mind you know that's yeah. i feel like that's i feel like that's going that's wired into the process um going in you know it well i mean it's intuitive it's, to me it's, it's yeah that's right i mean it's even a kind of um strange way of recycling trauma you know i mean obviously this is a state that was founded in the ashes of the holocaust um you know that it was um made possible in some ways because of one of the greatest crimes in the history of humanity, a genocide uh, of the Jews in, in Europe. Um, and that's almost as if that trauma, because the way in which it was processed uh, by Europe, um, in, in, for its own prism of, of, of wider spread anti-Semitism, I would really that's argue. right, oh, exactly. Yeah. You know that that the the solution that was envisioned is one where Europe and um, the West never really took responsibility, despite, of course, subsequent um, self-examinations and you know recognition that it was a horrible crime. 
you know, the, the, the precipitating events was the exclusion of Jews from full political citizenship. And it is precisely that that Zionism was seen as an antidote to, which was European anti-Semitism, the historic oppression and exclusion of the Jews. Um, and so it's almost like that trauma ends up, uh, you know, being the Palestinians to bear and to suffer under because Europe and the West never really confronted the fact that the responsibility was theirs and that mm. Zionism really was an attempt at imitating European nationalism in a period and in a context where it was no longer appropriate, if it ever had been appropriate to have this ethno. Oh, it's certainly out of date by now. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. In a lot of ways, I was saying this to a friend, I feel like there's a few spots in the world where World War II and, and, and its kind of consequences are still spinning out. And one of them is Israel and Palestine. Another would be North and South Korea. Mm -hmm. And to a certain extent, I think we have to think about what it means to truly end the legacy of that war totally. Mm -hmm. And whether we've really done that work as a, as a globe and as a species, because I don't, I don't think we have. I mean, it's really like, it's also the pinnacle of a type of kind of uh, like global north versus global south type dynamic where, I mean, usually that's bound mostly, and obviously it can be expressed in a lot of racialized terms. You think about the Congo and, and King Leopold, I think it was in Belgium and whatnot, but yeah. usually usually the, the global south has had to bear the brunt of the avarice and the greed of the global north. They haven't actually had to also bear the brunt of some kind of spiritual crime. Mm. You know what I mean? There's there's no other case in which non-Europeans have been have been subjugated to literally having to pay the price on on like a cultural spiritual level almost for the crimes of Europeans. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's yeah. a very bizarre it's a very bizarre extension of like an already existing dynamic to like a, a whole new disturbing level, I think. Well, I mean, yeah, that's a very interesting point and an interesting perspective on it, because I was thinking of it pretty much as a kind of outgrowth of European settler colonialism as the solution to European anti-Semitism and racial mm. religious bigotry. Mm. And it's so interesting that you're pointing out that this legacy of World War Two is still with us in, in, you know, various ways. And this is a real example of that. It made me remember um, a piece of work written by um, Amy Césaire, uh, Discourse on Colonialism, that he wrote in the 1950s, right during the era of decolonization, when in Asia and Africa nations were throwing off colonialism. Leaving the British Commonwealth. And yeah. That's, yes, it's the, exactly this era. And he wrote this book, Discourse on Colonialism, and he fits in with a, quite a number of great Caribbean anti-colonial thinkers. You know, Franz Fanon is, uh, comes a little bit later, but is part of that sort of generation. And you have, you know, Black Jacobins, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you have so many of these wonderful works that are-, are, are Yeah, that's uh, C.L.R. Lewis, right? C.L.R. James, yes. C.L.R. James, sorry. Right. Yeah. Thank you, thank exactly. you. Exactly. So, you know, that's a very productive uh, period uh, of time. And um, he wrote in this discourse on colonialism about how, you know, uh, everyone was trying to make, and so much reminds us of Trump and the Trump era of Trump, uh, everyone was trying to make it seem like it was completely atypical. It's, you know, not a normal political phenomenon, Trumpism, mm. Nazism, you know, saying, oh, this is an aberration. And mm. What he says in this is people act with this, you know, surprise, you know, and they become very indignant when you point out to them 
that in fact before they were the victims of Nazism, they were its accomplices, he says, you know, because they tolerated Nazism before it was in inflicted upon them mm -hmm. uh, when, you know, it was directed at non-Europeans through colonialism. And he makes this link between colonialism and fascism, that they're essentially the mm -hmm. same thing. The difference mm -hmm. is, is that fascism also included other Europeans as, you know, subordinate to a mm. German, you know, nationalism. Mm. Um, it's interesting. You know, but the, the same kinds of violence, the same kind of denigration, the same kind of dehumanization was unleashed in savage forms as barbar barbarism against, um, you know, the non-white world, the non-European world. And um, so this kind of pseudo-humanism, he sort of argues that this, uh, this pseudo-humanism has... Um, you know, especially of liberals wringing their hands about Nazism when they gave a pass to these global kind of um, forms of, of savage violence, um, that the rest of the world is having to, you know, and the rest of the world, you think about what happened during World War Two and in previous wars where so many colonial troops ended up fighting for the liberation of Europe from Nazism. So you had all these Algerian, West African mm -hmm. uh, troops that fought from French colonies fought for the liberation of France against Nazism, against racism. And then what happens when they come home? They're denied their political rights or social mm -hmm. rights and economic rights, even though they fought for freedom. You know, freedom. Well, that's, that's subjecthood in the colonial era, right? I mean, like that's literally, right. you're ch it's like chattel slavery in another guise, ultimately, when you think about it on a certain level. That's right. And it's so interesting because, you know, the same thing happened with uh, um, black soldiers, African-American soldiers who fought yeah. in Europe. And then they come back to the Jim Crow South. And, and they, had to, they had to scramble like the 47th Airborne or something to stop like uh, rioting and, and mob violence from taking place. Right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. exactly. So it's it's interesting that, that, that you say that those legacies are still there. We think a lot of time has passed, but in in many ways there are some interesting parallels with that that period in that time well and you even look at like things for like in russia for example the legacy of like the great war as they would call it or but i'm not sure what they called it in russia but like world war ii has a prominent like historical and cultural legacy in, in a place like russia very yeah. much to this day for sure on a level that most people here don't really understand i think um well people don't understand what russia well, the Soviet Union suffered, you know, in winning that war. You know, mm. I mean, you know, we talk about uh, U.S. D-Day, uh, you know, the beaches yeah. of Normandy and so on. But, you know, but really Russia lost more than all the other allies combined. Yeah. 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 Now, here, here's another question for you. I, I wanted to ask you this. So, I mean, we, t we know that Israel itself was born out of this uh, this historical uh, context when the Holocaust had just happened. You know, one of probably the most brutal um crime against humanity that we can ever imagine uh there's also the context of european and, and american anti-semitism and this desire to maybe kind of remove the problem the, the quote-unquote problem from their perspective and and move to move the jewish diaspora out of their own countries so if i mean if you can say then that there's been a component certainly not the only component but a, a component of supporters of israel that's steeped in anti-semitism um, I mean, it's interesting to me, right? Because we, we certainly live in an era where in the media and whatnot and in private conversation, you will be labeled as anti-Semitic for criticizing Israel. But I, I want to wonder if we need to move to a world where people are criticized for being anti-Semitic when they support Israel too much. 
especially well, in his crimes against the Palestinians as well, which I think we all know only serves to further inflame tensions. I mean, let's all like, let's be real here. Like we're all adults. Well, yes. I mean, okay, you're raising, you know, something that will sound really provocative in the way that one can frame it. But absolutely, you have to look at the real consequences and the real sources. So, you know, uh, currently, I think, uh, with changes that have taken place in the diasporic Jewish community that are very critical of Israel's policies and are concerned about the affiliation and the identification of Jews with you know, Israel um, you know, are questioning a lot of the key uh, principles and presumptions of Zionism. And it's to the extent that uh, many of the, the Jewish, uh, I mean, the Israeli right wing uh, that has typically relied upon the Jewish diaspora in the United States in particular uh, as a major source of support, think that that community in, in some ways is unreliable now because there's been so much questioning, particularly the younger generation, mm -hmm. that their real allies and reliable allies are the Christian Zionists, the conservative evangelical right wing. Well, and this comes to it. I mean, like, and how, and how much anti-Semitism is present in that community? Let's be honest. It's, not, I mean, well, it, may not, it may not be fully expressed, but it's latent. It's clear. You know, I mean, I think, I mean, I think, I think, I think if there's a, there's, these are people that don't respect the, the, the faith of Jewish people. They don't respect Judaism. They consider it kind of just a, a, a kind of signpost along the road to Christianity, right. to Christianity. I mean, like if, if there's, if there's one, if there's one group that has committed more crimes against the Jewish people over centuries, it's fundamental. It's fundamental is Christians. I mean, I'm speaking to a medieval scholar. We know this, yeah. right? Oh yeah. Well, look, go all the way back, you know, and think of the category of uh, the Jew in Christian thought and how it metamorphosed into a real anti-Judaism that you could say was proto anti-Semitism with pogroms, uh, blood libel, but also the massacres against the Jews. Every time the crusade was being preached from 1095 in the first crusade, the second crusade in the uh, you know 1140s, uh, that uh, accompanying this uh, hegemonic uh, colonialist settler, the first of these settler colonialisms in Palestine, okay, from Europe, that it was always uh, accompanied by massacres of Jews in Europe as um, allies of the Muslims, as enemies of Christ, just as the Saracens and the Muslims are enemies of Christ, and in this apocalyptic or messianic atmosphere mm -hmm. of restoring a kind of kingdom of heaven in the Holy Land, avenging uh, Christ, um, that the place of Jews in that once history is culminated, you know, this is the sort of idea is that, mm. uh, before the end times. Yes, you have to tolerate them because they literally preserve the so, you know, the Hebrew Bible, which is understood mm -hmm. in Christian thought as the Old Testament and provide which provides the evidence for Christians of the truth of Christianity. Right. So you have mm -hmm. to keep them around. They should be subordinate. They should know their place. They are servants of Christians, etc. But you want them around because they provide wonderful proof of the truth of Christianity, the prophecies of the New Testament, etc. Yeah, which but the culmination of that is their elimination ultimately at the end of times. Then exactly. all bets are off. And these Christian Zionists of today That's what they believe. They fucking believe exactly that shit, man. They they like they don't care about these people that live in this region. 
to them, they're just, they throw them in the meat grinder so they can live out their fucking messianic end of days rapture fantasy where they can finally go to heaven and have some fucking good sex for the first time in their goddamn lives. I'm sorry, well, but go. it's disgusting. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's disgusting that geopolitically your ideology would be based on your own self-aggrandizing fantasy of, of Christ coming down from heaven in your lifetime to give you a high five. I'm sorry, it's disgusting and childish and, and dangerous. Well, it is. And, and, but what's interesting is that they may believe it, you know, uh, but those who manipulate this for geopolitical purposes today, I mean, what is that? That is yeah. just so, so, such bizarre. It's real politics it's, on a really yeah. fucked up level is what it is. It's, it's, it's funding and, Wahhabists, and and fund Wahhabists and all other people. That's you know, right. the, the original Mujahideen, I mean, it's all, uh, you know, like no no foresight, no ability, just two st one step forward, two steps back. But um, I do think there is some good news in all of this. So if we're saying what is the state of the situation, I mean, some new elements in what typically appears to be the cyclical every few years bloodletting uh, in, in this cycle, some new elements of this one and in some ways, you might say that uh, this would be a rather controversial perspective, but I heard uh, Jim Zogby uh, mention this. Um, the famous pollster. The, the famous pollster, Arab-American uh, scholar and academic and um, he, commentator. He pointed out that up until Hamas started uh, sending its uh, rockets after its deadline passed for the end of this Sheikh Jarrah uh, ethnic cleansing of that neighborhood and of the assaults on the Al-Aqsa complex um, during the month of Ramadan, that uh, up until that time, all the attention was really on what was taking place in Jerusalem, solidarity that was being expressed among the Palestinian uh, population that are Israeli citizens within 1948, and that this in some ways put it back on track with the typical cycle, you know, of Gaza being bombarded and, you know, Israel has to defend itself and so on. And it kind of took attention off of what really had inflamed passions globally for justice for Palestine and solidarity for Palestine is seeing these worshipers being gassed and attacked and so on and the plight of people um, who have already been made refugees once being kicked out of their homes uh, uh, you know a second time so th that that sort of took attention away so I would say one thing however is that that was a mobilizing moment broadly speaking um, and so that's interesting, that's important, that a lot of these countries like the UAE, Bahrain, other of uh, these corrupt Gulf monarchies that have made normalization, treaty agreements with Israel in ways that have abandoned the plight of the Palestinians are now going to be facing a little bit more pressure, I think, from a, this worldwide community. That is a really interesting perspective because it's true, like certainly the last four or five years, probably a little bit longer, there has been a very slow creep of while paying the same or a requisite yes. amount of lip service to the Palestinian yeah. cause, really doing everything you can behind the scenes, various uh, states in the region to, to play your hand that you're you're willing to play ball, basically. Exactly. But you're saying yeah. that might reverse this trend. That's really interesting to me. Well, I, I'm what I'm or, suggesting or at least abate it. is that, yeah, it, it is at least that there is a mobilization, popularly speaking, that ha people are invested again in the Palestinian condition and situation that had been ignored. I mean, look, even the uh, march of return which was peaceful nonviolent, uh 
you know, attempt uh, to dramatize the right of return and the plight of the people under siege in Gaza. Hundreds of people were being killed, just shot, you know, mown down at the at the border fence, uh, as it's called. And to be honest, it didn't really, outside of typical Palestine solidarity circles, um, really gain much attention. This, however, gained global attention. People started caring again about the situation. The second really new thing I think that has to be confronted here is, um, you know, the Israeli uh, uh, Palestinians with Israeli citizenship in 1948 um, protesting in solidarity, and general strike. What happened, yeah, yeah, what happened in Lod? Um, the kind of uh, unwillingness to continue to take the ultra right wing fascistic um, uh, death to Arabs, uh, you know, uh, sort of slogans um, and hegemony lying down and to exhibit solidarity with Palestinians in other conditions. I do get and understand that their condition and situation as a small minority in the Jewish, in, you know, Jewish, uh, a Jewish state was quite different than those under occupation in territories uh, taken in the 1967 war or in Gaza. And so naturally they would have slightly different interests. They would have different histories in the post-1948 period that would condition their culture, their political uh, environment. However, despite all of that, that was quite courageous to begin to demonstrate. It happened one other time that I recall, which was in the first Al-Aqsa uh, Intifada, right? Or this you could call as almost an, uh, you know, a second Al-Aqsa Intifada that was emerging, or you could call it the uh, Edel Fitter, uh, you know, a war that was starting to, uh, to to break out. But the first time when Ariel Sharon took uh, hundreds of police and military personnel in order to assert sovereignty in a very provocative way in the Al-Aqsa uh, complex on, um, you know, in that in that area, it uh, elicited a huge response among Palestinians in the West Bank, in East Jerusalem, in Gaza and uh, an intifada that was violently put down and um, in which there was huge losses, uh, just absolute brutality. During that same time period, there were major demonstrations by Palestinians living inside Israel, and I believe 12 or 13 of them were shot, and it was really quite momentous. That was an, a sign of some kind of solidarity beginning, but that sort of disappeared, was suppressed for a long time. And it's, again, the same invasion of the Al-Aqsa, that symbolic, freighted, uh, you know, an important symbol of, you know, Palestinian potential sovereignty. Um, and, of course, of religious uh, sanctity for, you know, Muslims in particular, uh, was, again, a trigger for expressing a new movement for equality and justice by Palestinians inside of, of Israel. That's something kind of new. And I think it's quite scary for Israeli society to think about. It's a little bit like the Black Lives Matter. And I think I've seen mm -hmm. a lot of commentators who have suggested that the popularity of pro-Palestine solidarity movements globally uh, partic but particularly in places like the U.S., Canada, and um, in Western Europe, 
that are emerging, particularly among young people, uh, has something to do with uh, the recognition of um, brutality, uh, forms of police and military suppression uh, that are based in racism and mm. uh, ethno or religious exclusion um, that we witnessed in Black Lives Matter, that that has opened a lot of people's eyes to mm. the plight of the Palestinians in ways that is different. Something well, is different. I mean, there were probably there were probably Israeli security experts training police forces across America the last decade or two. Like, I mean, the security, the, like the security industry, mm -hmm. you know, like Israel is a superpower in that as well, as well as being a regional power. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting, though, like when you bring up the Al-Aqsa, I feel as though the religious dimension of this conflict is very much overstated by some. Absolutely. Um, and that, I find that problematic because it, it really serves to just to centralize the problem, to reify it, to make it seem like it's a, some sort of blood feud that's gone back thousands of years, you know, completely just throwing all the history of, of multi-faith, multi-denominational, multicultural um, cultures in that region and, and other adjacent regions, you know, as the people just behave as though that never, that never happened. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, at the same time, you can recognize that, you know, a, a religious site can have a cultural significance beyond just the religious significance. And that especially if it's if, if it's a component of a, a besieged group of people, it can really become a flashpoint. Is that is that really what what the what that is what's going on here more with Alexa in this oh, particular absolutely. conflict, would you say? Yeah. This is not a religious conflict in any way. However, there are religious symbols that matter beyond even just the Palestinians. Um, so I'm not saying that that is causal of the framework uh, politically that we're dealing with. The, the, the issue here is clearly one of settler colonialism, dispossession and occupation that is a political you know, question. It's a political question entirely. However, in terms of the symbols and cultural values and identifications that might uh, motivate people uh, within such a circumstance uh, to action or to uh, you know um, you know create lines of uh, affiliation of solidarity and sympathy those you know can be uh, religious religious symbols and i think um, for muslims globally to see places that they regard as holy being violated because of Israeli occupation, control and domination, um, and expropriation and dispossession of Palestinians, it comes to hit home in ways that perhaps just seeing, you know, a people suffering uh, oppression, you know, uh, doesn't motivate people always to action in quite the the same visceral sort of way. And that's why I actually was sort of surprised at um, some of the obvious excesses that you know in this era of media and during ramadan okay like look this is the wrong time if you wanted to uh, express so, you know sovereignty over this over this site the wrong time to do it is when all of this attention is being paid people globally are um you know engaged in religious activities and you're seeing prayer people at prayer being um, gassed and 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 attacked and beaten uh, and arrested and so on. Uh, it seemed very brazen to me. Um, it seemed that there was a level of audacity 
and of self-confidence that you could act with impunity that was leading Israeli policymakers, leaders, and officials under the influence of this extreme right wing, um, you know, that has become part of government of, you know, absolute fascistic uh, re religious racists uh, like the Mayor Kahane uh, sort of group. These people have now, you know, with this inexorable and constant ever shifting further and further right uh, of, of, of the Israeli government are now actually part of government. And I think that has emboldened them. The era of Trump, you know, moving of the uh, U.S. embassy and official recognition of Jerusalem as the capital. All of these steps have encouraged um, a real uh, action, you know, sense of impunity, right? That there's no way we will be held responsible and we can do whatever we want. And I think they really went very far in transgressing and miscalculating um, a more sober and subtle, uh, you know, not to say that they've ever been all that subtle, but this seemed like a step that was, um, you know, pushed by, you know, it was a, it was a kind of mistake that I wouldn't have expected to make. And, you know, uh, it was so egregious and so obvious. Yeah. And I think that has inflamed the situation mm -hmm. with consequences that could undermine a lot of years of successful, uh, careful diplomatic uh, uh, negotiations with these agreements with the UAE and, you know, uh, finding ways to isolate Palestinians in, you know, uh, world affairs and any of the sympathy that used to be there, you know, a lot of of that work I think has been undone, um, and the scales have dropped from you know many people's uh, uh, eyes. I think yet again. Now, one one thing that I think also uh, people get hung up on is the whole question of uh, the Palestinian Authority versus Hamas. You know, Mahmoud Abbas, uh, also known as Abu Mazdin. Mazen? Is it Mazen or Mazen? Yes, Abu Mazen, yeah. Mazen. And then obviously, um, I don't even know who the leader of Hamas is. I mean, they're kind of like, they're not really. Um, it's So this is the thing. Like, I think people don't realize that through the history, like the history of the Palestinian Authority, for one, is, is, is quite problematic. And at this point, really, you know, I think I, I heard them say on Chapo Trap House that like, really, in a lot of ways, the Palestinian Authority doesn't exist outside of Mahmoud Abbas's office. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, they're kind of the jailer of the West Bank in that they get they derive all their authority from Israel, and they're there to like provide security and clamp down on um, dissidents in the West Bank. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of view it as as you know they're they're kind of a branch of um, the tradition of Arab nationalism that goes back quite a ways. That's really kind of that day is past in a lot of ways, and you can actually you could even say that in this context the. This, this Arab nationalist party becoming weaker and weaker and weaker over time, creating a political vacuum that's then, that's then uh, filled by a, a mm -hmm. political Islam. I mean, really, that's much more the dynamic we're seeing here, right? And I think, I think it's really difficult for people to get over the fact that like, well, Hamas is horrible, quote unquote, in their minds, eh, but the Palestinian Authority is fine if only we can negotiate with them because it's, it's not as though Israel is ever gonna negotiate with either of them, first of all. Mm -hmm. Plus, I mean, if you go back, Israel not only supported Hamas in the early days, but if I'm not mistaken, oh, yeah. they created them, didn't they? Well, I wouldn't say that they created them in the sense that this is a wing um, or a, a, a manifestation of uh, 
the Muslim Brotherhood movement that you have um, across the Arab... Well, they supported them a great deal in the early days they, because yes, they wanted that, to create a schism within the Palestinian movement. They wanted exactly. to Exactly, they wanted factions. to fracture. Well, I mean, if you just think of it this way, I mean, the United well, what, States... What are we talking also, about? We're talking about it right now. Palestinian, Joe Biden saying, I will not negotiate with Hamas, but I will negotiate with the Palestinian Authority. Like that process of dividing the movement is still playing out in our very words right now. Oh, of course, of course. And, you know, the whole point, though, here is that the U.S. has historically. So why wouldn't Israel also, uh, you know, figure that it could exploit uh, a religious based movement uh, to undermine and divide a secular nationalist liberation movement. I mean, you know, this is what happened. Of course, we know, you know, the deep history of U.S. involvement with uh, jihadism in Afghanistan that led to, you know, Absolutely. the emergence of these radical you know, movements, um, you know, so that has been a technique during the entire Cold War, during the era of, um, you know, secular socialist liberation movements, that um, the surest policy um, by capitalist U.S. empire was to try and find religious groups that they could pit against um, those other populist uh political formations. And so you see the same kind of thing happening early on in, you know, uh, in Israel's support of Hamas as a counterweight to the PLO um, and uh, its, its uh, affiliated secular nationalist, uh, you know, uh, anti, you know, anti-Zionist um, struggles. Yeah. So yes, this, this is, the situation is that the PLO and the Palestinian Authority um, through the course of the Oslo Accords has lost any real popular legitimacy, has been completely ineffective in advocating um, in a principled fashion for Palestinian human rights and has, has essentially become irrelevant as a political force, not, of course, as um, you know, a network for distributing, you know, the paltry resources uh, mm. that come through in foreign aid as the only legitimate, mm. you know, partners for Western uh, aid organizations, UN organizations, governments, and so on. So they can still uh, pass on some of the, uh, the largesse, um, you know, in its network of patronage. But when it comes to actually representing Palestinian, um, you know, aspirations uh, and hopes politically, they are just the franchise, as you say, as you put it, sort of jailer of the occupation. I mean, yeah, um, that's that's really what it, what they've amounted to. And that has been obvious for years and years, years, years and, and years and years and years. That's yeah. right. And it's just a sort of stultified, uh, calcified, autocratic um you know, organization that, um, you know, recently uh, refused, you know, shut down uh, the elections. You know, um, I mean, Abu we Mazen should say, has we not should won say, a genuine election in, in years. years. The yes. thing is, I mean, to be honest, it's probably hard to, like, it was clear for a while there was some effort there, uh, say, say when, Ma, when Abu Mazen first started. But I mean, when you're dealing with a partner that, that wants to destroy you, is not interested in giving you a single win, is just, interested like i mean near the end of yasser arafat's term you know they were just firing like shells directly at like the house he was living in you know like yeah, it's yeah. pretty hard it's pretty hard but we gotta we gotta i think we need to accept and be aware of the facts on the ground right now which is they really don't have much popular support i mean i i would support 
elections in Gaza and the West Bank mm -hmm. to elect another uh, political movement that maybe would be uh, you have a better chance of like achieving peace. But mm -hmm. you know, I think I think that's another thing that people don't realize is really like the two state solution has been dead for over a decade too, at least. I mean, when it's been undermined constantly by by constant growth and settlements. Personally, like I've felt that the a one state solution, one person, one vote, full democracy is the real only solution there because, uh, you know, the, the God, places like Gaza and the West Bank have just have, they've had everything taken from them, you know, their water, their resources. I mean, they would not be viable states in their current form. I don't think. Well, this is the thing is that you have to just look at it from the perspective, it seems to me, not necessarily of imagining the end outcomes and doing, uh, you know, political uh, state formation design, like, well, who are we? You know, I mean, it's the principles. I mean, what you articulated are the principles of democracy, of equality, of justice, of human rights. That's what we adhere to. And if you apply those, then you're going to have to accord full democratic political rights to everybody who lives in the territory. That's the only way really to guarantee security. You know, if Israel is so concerned about security, really ultimately oh, the security lies in justice, fairness, and equality with those you live in uh, society, you know, with. Yeah. In, in and hopefully some reconciliation mixed in at the end there too, but only under certain right. conditions. You can't reconcile until, you know, the, the, actual, the actual violence is stopped. Right, right. Um, agreed. And, and uh, you know, I think the other component of this is, is mentioning that, um, you know, Hamas actually won elections, you know, I mean, the ANC was also um, regarded as beyond the political, politically acceptable, but ultimately, the South Africans had to deal with the you know, political organization that represented the people that um, they needed to conclude uh, an agreement with. And so uh, it's just foolishness at this point to uh, continue to pretend that we're talking about a normal political situation. You know, mm -hmm. obviously we're not. And um, as you pointed out, Gaza... West Bank, especially under blockade in this subordinate position without control of its own borders. These could never be viable states on their on their own. The two state solution has indeed been foreclosed by the use of the Oslo process in an incredibly cynical way from the very outset mm. of continuing to change facts on the ground while supposedly undergoing peace negotiations. I mean, that yeah. just showed and proved that from the outset, this was meant to be a way of pacifying rather than concluding a peace. Mm -hmm. It was a way of pacifying. And it was, a, it was a death of by a thousand cuts. Correct? That's right. And that yeah. pacification didn't ultimately work. It hasn't worked. Um, mm -hmm. So this is where we are. We, I, we're I also wanted to ask you, I actually I haven't, I haven't research this and it's something i've heard about before i know um i mean and, and people in uh, americans would understand this dynamic as well a huge proportion of the palestinian population has either been in prison or is currently in some form of prison um we can understand why some of these why this would be a, a, a fact um mm -hmm. and i know that there was quite a strong movement within the prisons of of leaders within the resistance movements and just other 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 palestinians in prison and that they were kind of forming like a little bit of a leadership cadre 
from within the prison system. Have you heard anything about that during this current crisis? I haven't actually. That's an interesting point. You know, that has sort of dropped a little bit off of my radar as well. Um, I have to look that know, up. Thinking of people like Marwan Al Barghouti, who during a, a period uh, represented some sort of critical counterweight um, to the Palestine, Palestinian uh, Authority, mm. but who was not part of Hamas, but was, you know, a different mm. kind of grouping. And because he was in prison, had developed, um, you know, network there and developed at least some bona fides and trust in the wider community was beginning to um, develop, it seemed like another way, an alternative uh, yeah. kind of political trend. I haven't heard much about that, but of course the plight of Palestinian political prisoners is a huge one. And you find that even teenagers, you know, people who are um, not considered legally responsible in normal, you know, uh, you know, law, uh, you know, to be to be jailed without trial um, and so on, that this is a huge uh, problem. And it's a lot like, you know, this is why I think the Black Lives Matter comes to resonate is when you start looking at the situation, it's very similar to the conditions of mass incarceration. You know, See, that's, that, a, that's a really that's a really positive thought, because I've heard people criticize Black Lives Matter for not achieving enough material change. And some of its founders are now owning like four houses and having these big careers. So it would be maybe maybe in a way if it had inspired this movement elsewhere. Mm -hmm. This is definitely a, I mean, it's a huge silver lining. Also, I think yeah, people don't realize how much the world has really changed since the last time the the, the hostilities flared up. Um, mm -hmm. Since 2014, like the social media world has really like gone to overdrive. Yeah. And I think people are getting older and they've seen the same narratives for long enough. And they've seen them really just like, uh, like just drilled right into the stone. Mm -hmm. we've, we've read the same article on the BBC a hundred times in the last 20 years, and it hasn't changed. If anything, it's just gotten more of the same. And I think people have inherently started to like kind of get a sense that, you know what, we can't actually buy this kind of um, this algorithmic narrative that we've just always been faced with. That's a great word, the algorithmic narrative, because in some ways I see repetition surrounding us in our politics all the time. I mean, even like Very the election of Biden is a kind of repetition of a previous neoliberal era that has proven so incredibly frustrating. I think that's something that's really aggravating. There's been so many opportunities where there could really have been decisive change. 2008 with the you know economic collapse, uh, the bubble, you know, then the upsurge of Black Lives Matter, and then we've had it again. And, you know, we seem to be, you know, caught in these repeated cycles and patterns um, that show really that uh, the system cannot provide under its current terms, uh, you know, and structures cannot provide the solutions. It can only- It, it only, but we only see that when it's been repeated enough that it's become yeah. ad nauseum, that it's become like a, just, just pure pablum. We need to see these. Sometimes you need to see the narrative repeated so long, so many times over such a period of time to make that realization. Um, and I think that is a very, it's very disturbing when you get to that point, you know, because the 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 kind of intensity and the and the rate of that repetition can also be a thing as well. And and yeah, like last I checked, human beings were good at of, of several things. One of them being pattern recognition. Uh -huh. So when I've read the same article for thirty years on this yeah. topic in the BBC. And I see the fact that the world has actually changed. It's I, th I think it's a really disturbing thing for a lot of people to make that realization. It certainly has been for me. 
I think we're, you know, I think that's well said because I think we're in an era where um, those who have been in power for a long time think that they can continue to recycle the same discourse, the same line, the yeah. same propaganda over and over again. They haven't caught up to the fact that people are fed up. The younger generation is asking a lot more questions and is not taking as given many of the presumptions and the, the terms of uh, how reality and especially political reality um, have typically been described. And so I'm hopeful about that, that it seems that many more people this round um, is not 2014 Gaza. You know, things there are a few things that are different. The attempts to try and portray and represent it as just the same thing, that this truce is all that is needed. And I think that's the key point is that, you know, this truce is held up as some big accomplishment. But now people know it doesn't solve anything. We have to actually solve the real problem. The problem is not that there was a flare up and that, you know, Gaza was bombarded and there were uh, Hamas rockets and we just need a ceasefire to end that kind of trading of you know military blows. No, that has led, we've gone through the cycle more than once, but 2014 was almost exactly the same situation. And um, you know, people I think are recognizing that something more fundamental has to change. Um, that's my hope out of this, is that at least something positive is percolating in solidarity movements and that even if many of these governments in the region that historically at least paid lip service you know, to uh, the Palestinian cause and have stopped doing even that with these normalization and economic treaty relationships, that um, at least broadly speaking, in terms of solidarity, where I think it really counts, which is in the United States, for example, and mm -hmm. in Western Europe, um, that there is a younger generation. There are Jews, um, you know, who are um, questioning some of the principles of Zionism and certainly feeling that, um, you know, after going through Black Lives Matter, after going through the, you know, era of Trump, that the symmetries between this kind of military occupation and police state racism, that these are forms of racism, they're forms of kind of settler colonial uh, dysfunction, and that you have these neo-fascist leaders, whether it's in the U.S. or it's, you know, in, in Israel, that need to be challenged and need to go. I think that has changed the dynamic a little bit, and it's the global solidarity movements that now I think BDS is really uh, back on uh, the table for many people. We just read an article that uh, Norwegian... Norwegian um, I'm forgetting the sovereign wealth fund of Norway mm. um, is divesting from two Israeli companies for uh, being, um, you know, violators of international law and that that poses certain kinds of risks that they don't want to be a part of because of those crimes against humanity. It's that's what we're talking about when it comes to divestment. If yeah. the world's largest sovereign wealth fund, yeah. you know, divest, that is big. Well, here's here's almost it's almost a depressing thought, but it's also uh somewhat hopeful in a weird way like you know i think i think people taking action to change the status quo you know it's be it's gone beyond i think in people's minds at large um, uh, that it has to be done because it's a moral question because it's immoral for things to stay the way they are i think people are also beginning to realize it's fucking impractical too because we're just going to come back and have the same problems exactly. or worse 
right. and from a practical standpoint of us just reasonably looking at the world and meth, doing things like managing risk, you know, the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Norway, exactly, they, they want to manage their risk as well. And, you know, obviously Norway has a long tradition of, of being kind of a, a peace, kind of obsessed or, or like a supportive of peace kind of nation. Um, I mean, the Oslo Accords, that's in Norway, right? Yeah, there you go. Yes, that's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's true. So, <laughs> it, was, it was in Oslo. Nobel so, Peace Prize, yeah. you know, these kinds of things. But, but I mean, even, even if they're sitting there looking at doing the calculus, I mean, people could just realize, like, from a practical standpoint, people living in safety and security and dignity with some form of economic uh, prospect is just is just the way it should be if, if we want to avoid creating all manner of problems, whether it's the rise of the far right, whether it's, uh, you know, mob violence, where people are just being pushed out of their homes by others, or, uh, you know, riot police cracking people's skulls with their batons. I mean, all of these things are symptoms of, of that lack, ultimately, on one level. Yes, yes, you know? yes. Well, I like that you mentioned the practical, you know, practical reason here. And I think that's what's even, in some ways, more hopeful, because these are savvy assessors of uh, financial risk, uh, of political risk. And quite apart from the moral question, which I wouldn't expect a you know, sovereign wealth fund to be particularly seized with, mm -hmm. uh, even if they are in Norway and, you know. And, and they're and nice, that, you know, you can be nice. Yeah, they can know. be nice, yeah. But the point is, is that they see it as a risk because they're looking around uh, and seeing that uh, there are fewer and fewer uh, you know, willing partners in tolerating and overlooking, you know, uh, these sorts of crimes against humanity and violations of international law. You know, when it's only the United States that um, four times is preventing in the UN Security Council a resolution to call for a ceasefire when all the other countries um, are doing so. You know, it begin and and that there are major protests in the United States and um, other Western uh, capitals that uh, perhaps uh, the era of impunity may not extend forever. Well, last I checked, impunity was not a good thing. Impunity was on the list of bad things. Right. Pretty sure impunity, generally, ninety nine point nine percent of the time, is either the result of or the precursor to something bad happening. Mm -hmm. So, um, now listen, Adnan, I'm so glad we got, to, we got on mic to talk about it. I know I want to be mindful of the time because you've been on mic actually for a few hours yourself here, oh, but, yeah. um, uh, would you, would you be able to come back maybe like later in the week and we'll continue the discussion? I think that would be really fun. Yeah, that would be fun. I always enjoy these conversations so much, Isaac, uh, yeah. you've got, uh, your finger on the pulse and I love the back and forth. It really sparks some good, interesting ideas, uh, in the dynamic. So let's do it again. Likewise. Yeah. Let's, let's get something for later this week uh, on the calendar. Okay. Adnan. Well, thank you so much for all the wonderful work. Much appreciated. People could follow you where? Uh, at on Twitter at Adnan A Hussein H U S A I N. Check out my podcast, The Mudgeless, if you're interested in the Middle East Islamic world. I'm actually going to be interviewing the author Timothy Brennan um, of a new biography of the great Palestinian scholar and dissident Edward Said. So, oh, fantastic! Yeah, look out wow. for that. First week of June. That should be, you know, wow. a really fun discussion on a very interesting biography of an absolutely vital figure in intellectual history 
political uh, history of this cause and on so many uh, interesting issues, besides being, of course, a wonderful literary scholar as well. So. Absolutely. But just kind of an actually an endlessly fascinating man, Edward Said. Yes. Oh, I, I was always I, I've never I never ceased to be surprised by new new avenues to, to look at about his life. Yes, I'll definitely I, I, more to his, that. I miss his voice so much during these kinds of times because he was such a brilliant commentator. And I actually think that um, there's been great scholarship, but I still absolutely love The Question of Palestine, a very important book he wrote. I still think it's one of the most amazing works um, on this on this question, on the question of Palestine. And so do, you know, check that out as it comes up. Listen to me on Guerrilla History. We have a, a great episode out um, just this last week on indigenous history in the U.S. with Nick Estes, author, uh, well, he author, you know, he's the Red Nation uh, podcast, podcaster yeah. uh, with his collective, as well as the author of Our History is uh, the Future. Uh, and I also had uh, an interesting conversation um, on guerrilla history about uh, the One Kingdom solution, the interconfessional marriage proposal that was made as part of the negotiations to try and end the Third Crusade that I think had some very interesting analogies with um, the contemporary uh, situation that I uh, discussed with uh, the fellows on guerrilla history. So wow. look out for those things. Fantastic stuff. Um, yeah, and uh, thank you so much to all of our patrons. We got a new uh, patron just today. Thank you so much, K-Man. We, we have a K-Man on both podcasts now as a patron. So much love to you guys. Uh, follow us at PodRule on Twitter. And uh, yeah, I look forward to continuing the conversation maybe Thursday or Friday, or if not then, then the weekend for sure. Um, we'll uh, we'll fit it in.
Yeah.